0: let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness, and we thank you for just uh, the privilege to abide in you, and to seek you, and to know you, and to, um, to hear from your word. Uh, and as we understand by the power of your Holy Spirit, who guides us into all truth, we thank you that you Give us all that we need for life and godliness. And uh, we ask that you would just guide us now, Lord, and have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah 65. Today, Lord willing, we finish the book of Isaiah. And then um, next week, and I think this is uh, directed by the Lord, next week there will be a brief detour through um, a study of the life. I'm going to give you a quiz now, Trivial Pursuit. A life of uh, the most successful Old Testament prophet. Anybody know who that is? Raise your hand unless you know the answer. Like, I only want somebody to blurt out the wrong answer. It kind of feeds my case. Uh, Blurred out a bunch of wrong answers. Somebody, anybody. Uh, these guys have been studying. Um, most successful Old Testament prophet. Jonah. Jonah. Who said Jonah? Gabe said Jonah. Jeremiah, because... Is this a mini-sermon? It's turning into a mini-sermon. Jeremiah, because they said, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? They they said, they didn't say Jonah, right? They said, maybe Jeremiah or one of the prophets? Anyway, so Jeremiah kind of looked like Jesus. But Jonah was very successful by man's standards, but we'll learn a little more about that. So anyway, take a brief detour through Jonah and then back to Colossians. And there's your roadmap uh, if you want to read ahead for the next few weeks. So... We find ourselves in chapter 65 of Isaiah kind of continuing a theme, if you will, of sort of the, that we talked about a little bit by the end of chapter 64, and basically it's this. The end of chapter 64 took us through this process, uh, starting in verse uh, 6, that we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, and we all have this process in life of coming to grips with the fact that really we all know, we've all been sort of, as we read the Bible, um, and if we don't know this, we quickly learn this, that we're all sinners. And not only are we all sinners, we're all like the kind of sinners described in Romans chapter 3, where it says, no one is righteous, no, not one. and and yet it's kind of a little bit expounded that even the things that we do that are good, the things that we think are righteous, they don't count in the eyes of God because uh, if they're righteous on our own by our own efforts, then really, I mean, how do you compare our righteousness with God's righteousness? You don't. And so all of our righteousness by comparison are like filthy rags. And the more we understand that, Then we move into a mindset, if you will, that we are then like clay and God is the potter. And so God is this loving, gracious, heavenly, all-powerful, all-knowing potter who uses, who wants to make our lives into a vessel that is worth something. And in order to do that, we have to recognize that we are an otherwise worthless lump of clay right? And as we know that we are an otherwise worthless lump of clay, then we are usable to God the potter. He described He gives us a little bit of a uh, a kind of a word picture on that in Jeremiah. We read about that last week. I refer you back to that. But anyway, so we're continuing sort of this theme, if you will, as we wind down the book of Isaiah, that God is distinguishing sort of the self-righteous religious person from the humble person who just wants to be God's instrument, okay? Now, is that a new concept? Anybody like do I need to throw to re-explain that? No. It's a it's an old con- concept. It's a concept that we all that, we're, that we've kind of heard before, but I think we would agree it's a lifelong process to really embrace and capture and understand and live out that process. And that process is that I need to uh, not be impressed with my own uh, self-righteous religion, and the more I'm unimpressed with my own self-righteous religion, the more I'm humble and usable uh, to God uh, as his instrument. So, the contrast is in the, in the, um, in the Jewish nation, in, in the audience that Isaiah is writing to immediately, if you will, is the Jewish people, Right? The Jewish people were all about their own righteousness. And he's going to talk a little bit about the Gentiles as sort of the alternative to that. So that sort of sets the stage for where we go. Is that fair? Everybody with me so far? Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. And so he starts out. Um, really, this is a reference to the Gentile nations. Uh, the Gentiles sort of found God personally, but not through religious means, right? The picture is like us coming to Jesus with an attitude of surrender rather than an attitude of I've made it, right? You ever notice somebody, sometimes we have this attitude in our in our Christian lives. I mean, this is talking about the, the Jewish nation. But in our Christian lives, sometimes we get this idea that if I can be good enough, I'll make it into uh, a, a state where I've uh, got favor with God. Anybody ever tried that? Anybody ever tried to earn favor with God? Even as Christians, you might say, yep, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm saved by grace. I read the four spiritual laws. I know the Romans Road. I know the whole drill. I know that, but I'm still trying to earn favor with God. And I believe even as settled, established Christians, we still tend to try to earn favor with God. God said, I was sought by those who didn't, didn't ask for me. Like the Gentile nations found me. Paul talks about this at length in Romans. The Gentile nations sort of found God, but they didn't find him through religion. The alternative is, he says, I have stretched out my hands. Now, speaking of the Jewish nation, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. Now, think about this. These people were self-righteous. They thought, they thought they had the Old Testament law. They had circumcision. They had the Sabbath. They had all these special favors as God's chosen people. And because of that, they sort of had a little bit of entitled attitude, and they were religious based on their works. And God describes that from his perspective as like, I'm stretching out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. Now, in our day, right— if I go up to you and I say, give me five, right? And you don't respond by giving me five. We even have a term for that, right? You left me what? Hanging. hanging. You left me hanging. We have a term for it. It's so, it's so repulsive, right? To leave me hanging, right? Or if you do it to a kid even, you know, hey, give me a fist bump. They leave you hanging, right? You're all with me, right? Yep. Okay, good. Imagine... The God of all creation, not like high fiving or fist bumping, but but sticking out his hands, right, to rebellious people. Now I think about this. I was reflecting over this a little bit. I remember, you know, my kids were young. Uh, You know, Daddy comes home from work, right? They run and they hug Daddy, right? And that's a good thing, right? Right. And then they get a certain age where that doesn't happen quite so much anymore. And I get that. It's not. There's nothing wrong with that, right? you know, be a little bit weird if I come home from work and Nate comes running out the door and gives me a big hug. That'd be weird, right? So I'm okay with that. But then there's, uh, you know, then there's a phase with grandkids, right? So I'm kind of learning this with grandkids now. I got grandkids from um, eight months up to eight, not anyway, about that big. And um, you know, when there's certain age, Papa can hold out his arms. And they do what? They come running, right? And then that lasts for about three months. And then that window of time is gone. It's kind of a sad thing until the next kid gets of that age, right? And then Papa gets a little bit. um, Papa's got a little more season in his life than they do, right? So Papa will say, uh, one of them I can appeal to. uh, Is is Melody in the room? Okay, good. Um, Melody. I can appeal to her sense of competitiveness and say, who wants to win the hugging contest? <laughs> right? And she says, I will. Right? She's the only one in the contest, right? Because the rest of them are like, whatever. <laughs> so today, I even tried that. And it didn't work. It fell flat. And she, or, or what, what they really love to do, right? You're holding your arms out, and you're looking at them. You're staring at them. And you're just like, come give Pop a big hug. And just for the entertainment of it, they love to like run right past you. Right? Right? Now, why does Papa want a hug from his grandkids? What do the grand, what's, a, what's a three-year-old grandkid, four-year-old grandkid have to offer Papa? You're all blank, right? $10 bill? right? I'm going to get some money out of a grandkid, right? Am I going to get some work out of a grandkid, right? Am I going to get like food out of a grandkid? Am I going to get any kind of reinforcement or anything at all out of a grandkid by that that affectionate hug? No, all I'm getting is fellowship, and that's all I want. That's all I want. Now, how weird would it be if a four-year-old grandkid comes up, Papa wants a hug, and instead the four-year-old grandkid gives me a $10 bill? Hey, Papa, go buy a cup of coffee. Right? I'd say, are you kidding me? Right? Now, how often do we as Christians, our Papa is just holding his arms out, just for fellowship. And we say, hey, Papa, I sent a check to the missionary this week. Papa's like, are you kidding me? Right? He says, all day long. It's really a sad picture, honestly. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebel, not just a, not just a, a, a negligent people, not just a people who are too busy or distracted, but to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. According to their own thoughts. And can I tell you this? He talks about according to their own thoughts in the same description as a rebellious people. Now, we need to know this because we are indoctrinated from a young age as Americans to follow your Heart. I mean, anybody knows, you've been to Disneyland, you're going to wish upon a star and you're going to follow your heart. And that's, you know, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to follow our heart. Well, I would liken that to saying according to their own thoughts. And let me just say, there needs to be a standard in my life that's way higher than my own heart. Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately wicked, and deceitful. So my heart is a sinful heart because all my righteousnesses are like filthy rags and it's deceitful, right? Can my heart trip me up and make me think right is wrong and wrong is right? You bet it can. You bet it can. My heart can do crazy things to my mind. My heart can do crazy things to my mind. And don't don't ever fall for that one please. Don't fall for that one. My heart can do crazy things to my mind. You know the book of judges, I always think of the book of judges. You've heard me say this before. The book of judges is a is a Is a history of the time of, uh, during a certain time in the the nation of Israel that was just like disaster after disaster after disaster, not only disaster, but it's like you got these cycles of disaster, then God rescues them, disaster, God rescues them, disaster, God rescues them, disaster, God rescues them. And you think at some point, are these people going to get the message? But it's disaster after disaster after disaster with brief interludes of being rescued by God. And the very last verse in in that book says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And let me just say this. For us to do what is right in our own eyes, for us to follow our heart, for us to to walk in a way according to our own thoughts is super dangerous. Super dangerous. So he says, all day, I've just held out my arms. I stretched out my hands to rebellious people, just, just wanting fellowship. And what they did is they, they walked in a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts. You don't need to turn there. But Paul basically reiterates this. I just tell you this just to know that it's, that Paul thought it was important to, to capture. Chap, Romans chapter 10, starting verse 20 He said, Paul says this, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so speaking through through the New Testament, God has been longing for this relationship with his Jewish people. And he has this longing for relationship and fellowship with us. Verse 3, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face. Again, these are the, the, the Jewish people, particularly as they fell into uh, pagan idol worship. Who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick. Who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs. Who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels. And so, you know, the Jews were being very religious, except that they were following the wrong religion. They were following the religion of their, of their pagan neighbors. And notice what else these, these people were doing. Who say Verse 5, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. The King James says, holier than thou, right? We know that phrase. For I am holier than thou. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. So it's possible to become so religious that we're no longer teachable. Right? who say, keep to yourself, don't come near me, I don't want to hear it. It's possible to be so religious. It's possible, let me just put it in our vernacular if I can, it's possible to be such a good Christian that I'm not teachable. Isn't that scary? Because I want to be a good Christian. But it's possible to be such a good Christian, if you will, that I'm not teachable. So we've got to really be careful what that means, good Christian. It means I think I'm good. And when we do that, we're no longer teachable. That's when we become holier than thou. And notice what God says about it. It's like smoke in my nostrils. You've been around a campfire and the fire, fire follows you, right? You get smoke in your nostrils. It's irritating. It's annoying. You just want to get away from it. So we should desire to please God, not to irritate him. Verse 6, behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. So the reality is God will judge. God will judge sin. God will judge the world. Uh, It's just a reality of life. Verse 8, thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, and from Judah an heir of my mountains my elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell, dwell there. Sharon will be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. So this is a beautiful encouragement here. Notice, We've talked about this before. God deals with nations in certain ways, and yet God deals with individuals in, uh, specifically. And God won't, here he's talking about, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, don't destroy it, so will I do for my servant's sake. So it's almost like he's saying, you know, there's a cluster of bad grapes, cluster of rotten grapes, and there might be one good grape in the middle of that cluster. And so as a result of that, as a result of that individual, God's not going to throw away the whole nation. And we know this, and we see it in Romans chapter 11, uh, Paul says, so did God just throw away the Jewish people? Absolutely not. And we need to keep this in mind, and it's reiterated here. God's not going to throw away the Jewish people. God is not done with the Jewish people. There's a remnant, a remnant that will be preserved. And because, he says, there will be, there will be um, new wine found in the cluster. There will be remnants of people who follow the Lord wholeheartedly within the nation of Israel. And so, therefore, he's going to preserve that remnant. And, um, and particularly, as we talked about how it plays out in the sort of the prophetic timeline, one of the things that's going to happen through the great tribulation is that God is going to raise up that Jewish remnant. You recall in the book of Revelation, there's going to be 144,000 evangelists, right? Well, they're all Jewish males. 144,000 Jewish evangelists during the time of the Great Tribulation, the church is gone preaching to that world at that time. It'll be amazing. Amazing. And by the end of that time, particularly, God will have dealt with the nation of Israel and preserved the remnant and um, set that up for, the, for his return in the millennial kingdom. Um, but anyway, he says Sharon. Sharon was a, an area there of, of Israel. Um, that's going to be for a fold of flocks. That's going to be preserved. I'm not going to throw away the nation. Uh, they're they're going to they're hang out there in Sharon. They're going to hang out uh, in the Valley of Achor. Interestingly, the Valley of Achor, you remember Achan? the guy in the book of joshua who when they uh, conquered the city of jericho he's the guy that coveted that you know that gold and all that stuff and anyway he wound up getting stoned he and his family they got stoned to death and where they got st- where they st- those people were stoned was called the valley of achan and it became the valley of achor and so that place of judgment is now going to be a place where herds lie down. It's going to be a place of comfort. It's going to be a place of restoration. And that's really a picture of what God does. Verse 11, But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, and who furnish a drink offering for many. Now, back to the individuals who reject God, they were offering to God, these gods, Gad was a God of good luck, and many was a God of fate. Now think about this. They, instead of serving the God, almighty God, who's got his arms stretched out all day long for fellowship, they were serving the God of good luck and the God of fate. Does anybody today serve the God of good luck and the God of fate? I think so. How often, I don't know, in my life have I, have I been to a funeral and somebody says, well, they're in a better place. And, you know, I try to be respectful, and I'm respectful in that moment, but... I think a lot of people are counting on fate and good luck to get them to heaven. Somebody had no acknowledgment of God Almighty all their life, and we say they're in a better place. That's based on fate and good luck. And let me just say this: God is way more personal than good luck. Imagine, imagine placing your eternal destiny in good luck. Good luck. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Verse twelve. Therefore, I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear. But did evil before my eyes, and chose that in which I do not delight. So it is not always pleasant or uh, comfy to talk about these things. But the reality is, God is a God of justice and grace. And God has to judge the world. Now, he's given us every opportunity imaginable uh, to uh, repent, to uh, choose to follow him, to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And he died on a cross to make it all possible. But there still will be those, those who choose that in which I do not delight. And so judgment comes to those who choose to reject God, who choose to reject God. And uh, because God is loving, God gives us choice. God is sovereign, I get that. God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, God is sovereign, and God orchestrates the pages of history, and God even orchestrates the pages of my life. But somewhere in there, in ways that our brains can't fully comprehend, God allows me free choice. And if I choose to reject his love, and his grace, and his mercy, then he will not force himself On me beyond my free will. And judgment comes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God Behold, my servants shall eat. Now we're back to his servants. Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and will call his servants by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. And so, again... You know, there's tremendous blessing and privilege and provision for the child of God, right? These people that are called his servants, that would be us, right? I mean, in the context he's talking about uh, prophetically, but it applies to us. Behold, my servants shall eat. Does God feed us and take care of us? Yeah. My servants shall drink. My servants shall rejoice. Does God give us reason today to rejoice? Yes, he does. My servants shall sing for joy of heart. Did we sing today for joy of heart as we gathered? Yes, we did. All because we are his children. And so, you know, there's lots of blessing of being a child of God. But we've got to keep in mind that those blessings are secondary. The primary blessing of being a child of God, of being one of his servants, is that we have fellowship with him is that we have fellowship with him. And it's just like a papa that wants to hug his grandchild. There's there's nothing more complicated in that interaction than a loving heavenly father wanting to have fellowship with his servant, with his child. And that's us. It's a beautiful opportunity that we have. For behold, verse 17, I create new heavens and a new earth, And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. And so you know, again, you got to keep in mind, Isaiah is writing prophetically. He's writing um, he's writing to the historical situation of the day. He's writing to uh, folks that'll be later in the future uh, carried off to Babylon, and, and he's going to be wanting to encourage them as they consider their return back to Jerusalem. He's also writing yet future, uh, you know, that's even beyond our time now. And so, you know, So he kind of goes back and forth a little bit because it's all future for him. But uh, here what he's describing, I believe, uh, is heaven itself uh, because he says uh, rejoice forever. He describes the Jerusalem. You know, there's there's a new Jerusalem described in Revelation 21, uh, which uh, is in heaven. It's after the millennium, right? And so he's describing Jerusalem here, the new Jerusalem, as a part of heaven and uh, there will be the voice of weeping shall no longer be heard, nor the voice of crying, and we know there will be no weeping in heaven, right? So that's what we have to look forward to. And so I love the idea as we, again, we read, we're reading prophecy, and so he goes from one moment talking about, you know, the Jewish people that, that, I've, that have rejected me and my servants who receive me, and then he's all of a sudden he's then going into a description of heaven. And I believe the picture here is, God sees it as all a continuum. You ever notice that? We see ourselves as, um, all right, I got my earthly life before I got saved, and then I got my Christian life as I'm saved, and I got my Christian life as I'm, as I'm kind of living the rest of this life on earth, and then I've got my life in heaven, and we see them almost in segments, right? I think God sees them as a continuum. It's like we're, we're his children now. We're going to be his children in heaven, And it's like, I I think in God's perspective somehow, I mean, we don't know the mind of God fully. But I think somehow in God's mind, it's much more seamless than it is probably in our minds. Is that fair? And honestly, we should take comfort in that. As we approach the end of this life, it's just a, you know, it's just the next step. As we have loved ones that have gone before us, they just took the next step. And so I think from God's perspective, you know, I think sometimes we see, we see this life is so temporary. We see death is so final. And I think if God were, were, uh, I think if God were describing it, as he does in various places, it's much more seamless. And uh, it's much more encouraging, I believe. So he says there's going to be no more crying there when we get there. And then he goes on, now this point, I think he's talking, in verse 20, he then jumps to a description of the millennium, and I'll tell you why in a second. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For a child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner, being one hundred years old, shall be a curse. So obviously there's no death in heaven, right? So we're talking about a situation here where a child shall die a hundred years of, old, of age. Well, that's kind of weird, Right? If somebody dies 100 years old, that a child would die at 100 years old. The implication here is that normal life will be much longer. Or the, the person who dies at 100 years old will say, Wow, that was, that was a bummer. He just lived sh- such a short time. Sort of, the, he shall be accursed. And so, this speaks, I believe, of the millennial kingdom. Now, we see various descriptions of the millennial kingdom. Um, specifically, a lot of it here in Isaiah. That we've talked about. And so it's not heaven. There's going to be death. And yet somehow uh, lifespans will be greatly increased. Um, somehow there's going to be a lot more. Um, it'll, be, it'll be much like the Garden of Eden. And yet that's about the best way we can kind of describe it. Um, but it'll be glorious. Verse 21 goes on with a little more description. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. These are things that happen to the Jewish nation all uh, throughout their history. Every time they build a house, somebody else winds up living in it. And every time they plant a vineyard, someone else gets the, gets the, the fruit. But he says in the millennium, they'll, they'll get to reap what they sow. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble." For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. it shall come to pass before they call, I will give answer, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and dust shall be the serpent 's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy all in all my holy mountains says the Lord. So again, just a little more description of of this millennial kingdom it 's really going to be a, a an amazing uh, time where after the tribulation, Jesus comes back, sets up a millennial kingdom on earth from Jerusalem as the headquarters. It'll be a, a magnet. All the, all the world will look on this, this kingdom and say, that's amazing. And we will serve him uh, with him together and reign with him. Isaiah chapter 11 gives us a little more description of this. I like this. Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 6 says the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. Now would a wolf and a lamb hang out together and enjoy fellowship together in our world today as we know it? I don't think so. You know, a few weeks ago we had a, remember that day in April on a Thursday it snowed? Everybody remember that? Yeah. We had this fox come into our yard and we thought that fox must be confused because of the weather patterns. It's just so cute though. You ever seen a fox up close? It's beautiful. I mean, it was as far away from here to the, to the back wall. And we're like, oh, that's just so beautiful. And then he kind of runs off and, you know, goes down the hillside. And, and you know, we're a nature-loving family. We, we all kind of select, collectively said, what do we say collectively? Aw. Yeah, we said aw together. And it was kind of, a, kind of a bonding experience for a nature-loving family. About two days later, same, I assume it's the same fox, looked the same. He was cute, so it must have been the same one. Comes by. He's got a chicken in his mouth. We didn't say aww. Right? Aw, I should have shot him three days ago when he was cute. Right? He's got a chicken in his mouth. He actually had three chickens in his mouth. It was all said and done. Right? That's not going to happen in the millennium. Right? In the millennium, the fox comes out. You introduce your fox to your chickens and not worry about it. Right? The The wolf shall, fox, chicken, chicken, fox. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. I love this. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. Right? Now, we don't have cobras in our area. But can you imagine a nursing child like a, you know, less than a year old child? It's kind of playing in that cobra's hole. And, you know, the child's mother says, enjoy yourself. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full. Catch this. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Won't that be a beautiful place to live? Now, it won't be heaven, I mean, because we know from chapter 65, there's going to be some death there. But if the earth is going to be full of the knowledge of the Lord. However that plays out, it's going to be a beautiful place to live. So we can look forward to that, and that's even before we wind up going to heaven. Chapter 66, he's kind of, Isaiah's kind of summarizing, he's kind of bringing some final thoughts together, uh, kind of summarizing some of his overall concepts he's been talking about in the previous chapters. Um, so he says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me and where is the place of my rest? And so, you know, God wants us to know that he's sovereign. He's powerful. I mean, imagine, you know, in, in the ancient world, you know, kings had a throne and they had a footstool. Imagine if all of the, the you know bazillion light years away galaxies and everything else like that that was god's throne and earth was just his footstool that's how big god is that's how powerful god is that's how that's how amazing god is and yet in that he says hey where's the house that you'll build for me and and where's the place of my rest where i got this throne and this footstool but again what i want is fellowship with my children The God who created all the cosmos wants fellowship with you. Chew on that for a minute. The God who created the entire cosmos wants to be your friend. Amazing. He says, for all these things, all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. That's the only reason I did all this. The whole reason I created the cosmos, the whole reason I, I sent my son to die on a cross, the whole reason I did all of this is so I could have fellowship with you. But on this one I will look, he says, there in verse 2, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at his word, at my word. You catch this? What has got one out of us? Look at this. Let me read this again. Let me tell you what it doesn't say. Is that fair? It doesn't say, but on this one I will look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word and who has been water baptized by immersion and gives a tithe on his gross, not the net, and shows up for church enough to earn the gold star and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Does he say that? No. Does he say that, by the way? Does he say that? No. What's he want out of us? A poor and contrite spirit and one who trembles at his word. See so you catch this? Because we as Christians, we put a lot of stock sometimes in those other things. Right? You know we put a lot of stock in you know I go to church regularly, I tithe on the gross uh you know I've been baptized by immersion uh I don't smoke, I don't cuss uh I do all the right things we put a, frankly we we put a little bit we put a we put a fair bit of weight on those things and and really reality one of the Big distinction between the doctrine is which of those things, de, or, you know, denominations, is which of those things, well, we're the, you know, we're the baptism people, so that is high on our list, and, you know, we're the uh, missionary people, so that's high on our list, and we're the, you know, the formal people, and so, you know, this is high on our list, and so, you know, but all these things are, are things that are the, the above what he's saying here are the things that tend to divide us as Christians. And when those things divide us, the reality is probably we're putting too much emphasis on those things. And those things don't matter. Those things don't matter. This is what God wants. He wants us to have a poor and contrite spirit, and he wants us to tremble at his word. You know, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? The poor in spirit. He's not saying, you know, poor financially or in any other way. He's just talking about a poor and contrite spirit. The person that's humble. The person who says, I don't have my act together. I'm not impressed with my righteousness because I realize they're like filthy rags. I just want to surrender to a loving God. Heavenly Father. That attitude, number one. And number two, who trembles at my word? Do we tremble at God's word? Do we highly, I'm preaching to the choir, right? But do we highly value the word of God as Christians? It's something to ask ourselves. Do we highly value, do we tremble at his word? Do we value his word so much, consider this now for a minute, do we value his word so much that it has a higher value than my opinion? Right? Well, we say, well, you know, it's Sunday morning. Of course, the answer to that is yes. But as we live our lives, is that how it plays out? Do we value His Word that high? Now, I'll tell you what I've just seen over the years. Uh, I'll just be transparent. God says, In the beginning, He made the heavens and the earth says, day one, he did this. Morning and evening was the first day. Day two, he did this. Morning and evening was the second day. On and on through the first six days of creation. You know, but I've been taught from a young age that that's kind of mythological. So I think that, mm, I think that that's not really, it can't be what he really, it can't be that he meant what he said I love what Ken Ham says. Uh, you know, Joshua was told to march around Jericho for uh, seven days, right? Or six days, and then on the seventh day, go around seven times. So, do we alleg- was that like? Do we allegorize that, right? What Joshua? And then he draws. He's got this little cartoon like of a, ty- a very tired Joshua marching around the Jericho for six million years, right? No, we don't think. We think of it as seven days. But oh, you go to the you go to Genesis chapter one. I don't think he meant what he said, right? Do we tremble at God's word? Well, you know, God says we should um, live this way. Do we tremble at God's word? God says for this cause, a man, human being, homo sapien, with an XY chromosome on every single gene of every single cell in his body that contains genetic material. Shall leave his father and mother, and I had to define that, by the way, what it means to be a man. Shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, a homo sapien female, whose cells all have genetic material that contains an X and an X chromosome signifying her by the hand of God sovereignly as female. Wow, this is getting a little dicey. Is it warm in here? It's getting a little dicey, right? What am I saying? I'm saying, do we tremble at God's word? Is God's word more highly valuable than my opinions? Is God's word more highly valuable than my traditional education? Is God's word more highly valuable than what society says? is truth. Here's all God wants. I honestly think God doesn't really care how much money we give. I honestly think God, I mean, except that it's a reflection of our hearts. I honestly think God doesn't care about any of those things except that they're a reflection of our hearts. But if we focus on those things and we forget, but on this one I will look, on him who is of a poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That's what he wants. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's looking for. And it's easy to see, you know, as we look at our cultural context, why... You know, the New Testament says, you know, when Jesus comes back, will he really find any faith on the earth? Will he find any faith left on the earth? Because these two simple things have been so neglected over the years. Verse 3, he who kills a bull as if he slays a man, he who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck, he who offers a grain offering as if he offers a swine's blood, he who burns incense as if he blesses an idol, just as they have chosen their own ways and and their soul delights in their abominations, so will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. And so, you know, the alternative of having a poor and contrite spirit and trembling at His word is the religious zealot who does his own thing. And in the days of the uh, of the Jewish history of the Jewish people, that alternative was uh, pagan idol worship. And so they thought they were sacrificing to God. God says, "You know what? If you think you're sacrificing to, if you think you're sacrificing." and it's from the wrong heart then killing a bull you might as well slay a man it's like if you come to to the temple and again I'm talking in Jewish terms now, if you come to the temple and you offer an animal sacrifice thinking that that religious act is going to do you some good and your heart is far from God then you basically all you did was commit murder on the animal and think how much that applies to our lives. I mean, we don't worship animals. I mean, we don't sacrifice animals, stuff like that. But if we are all about giving, if we're all about, you know, whatever our thing is, apart from a genuine, heartfelt love and surrender for God, it's just, it's, it's, it's just filthy rags. So these guys, they were basically murdering animals thinking that they were uh, doing something cool. Hear the word of the Lord, he says, you who tremble at his word, so that's us. Your brethren hated you. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. And so, you know, back to you who tremble at his word. You know, those people hated you, for your faith, but they will one day be ashamed. You know, it's interesting. This speaks, I believe, to Christians today, but also speaks uh, very directly to the nation of Israel, right? Think about the nation of Israel. I mean, if you have no other reason to believe the, the truth of the Bible, consider the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, over the course of history. Pharaoh tried to wipe them out. Haman tried to wipe them out. You know, fast forward, everybody's tried to wipe them out. Adolf Hitler tried to wipe them out right? So even in modern day history, right? Seems like everybody hates Israel. Is that relevant today? That's relevant this week. It's relevant this week. But you know, my Bible says, my Bible contains Genesis chapter 12, where God told Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation from you, and the, and the person that blesses you will be blessed. The person that curses you will be cursed. And it applies to nations. And it's playing out in history. And so what he's saying is, you know, yeah, to the nation of Israel, those, there were, you had plenty of enemies. You've had plenty of enemies all along. One day, right will be right and wrong will be wrong, and uh, they shall be ashamed, he says. Verse 7, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to, to them to the time of birth and not cause delivery? Says the Lord. Shall I cause? Shall I, who cause delivery, shut up the womb? Says your, says God. Says your God. So what he's saying is I'm going I'm going to bring all this to pass. I'm going to carry out my purposes. And I'm going to do it in my way. It's kind of like bringing delivery without the pain, of, the pain and work of labor. And so God's going to do it. He says, Rejoice, verse 10, with Jerusalem, and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may, be, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed on her sides. You shall be carried, and you be dandled on her knees. So, again, in the millennium, Jesus is going to establish a kingdom. I believe this is what this speaks of. A kingdom of peace from Jerusalem that will be a beacon for the rest of the world, including all the Gentile nations. So all those nations. You Imagine the millennial kingdom. Jesus comes back, sets everything right, reigns from Jerusalem. And Iran will look at Israel and say, wow, you guys are amazing. Imagine that kind of world. Russia will look from the north and say, wow, you guys are amazing. I want to go to Jerusalem, see what's going on there. you imagine that? It's going to happen. I believe it's going to happen. Verse 14. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. And by, for by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. This is described clearly in Revelation. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination of the mouse, shall be consumed together, says the Lord. And so, when Jesus comes back, his children will rejoice and it, his enemies will be judged. For I know their works and their thoughts. It'll be, it shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues. So this is when, you know, during that millennium, everybody's going to come and gather and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and those among them who escape I'll send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pole and Lud, who draw the bow with and Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar of off who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the gentiles, then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of out of all nations on horses and in chariots and in litters on mules and on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem says the Lord as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel to the, to the house of the Lord and I will also take some of them for priests and levites says the Lord so everybody's going to come from all over from all these nations that once hated the Jewish people they will come to serve their god for as the new heaven and the new earth which i make which i will make shall remain before me says the lord so shall your descendants and your name remain and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one sabbath to another all flesh shall come to worship before me says the lord and they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh so he ends a little bit on a downer, honestly. And On one hand, the reality of judgment is the reality of judgment. But we, his children, uh, don't have to face that judgment. We can rejoice forever. We can appreciate his goodness. And we can worship him in spirit and in truth as his children. So... Chapter 65 and 66, God is not impressed with our religion. Like a papa wants fellowship with his grandchild, God just wants fellowship with his children. He doesn't want our service, he doesn't want our $10, he doesn't want our gold stars, he doesn't want anything that we think is cool from a religious standpoint. He just wants fellowship. He stretches out his hands all day long because he just wants fellowship. He's not impressed with our religion. He's not impressed with our religious heritage. He wants us to have a poor and contrite spirit, and he wants us to tremble at his word. You know, if we can go through this life, if we can go through this life doing that, then we win. Doing that day by day, month by month, year by year, decade by decade. Can I tell you a cool story? So last Sunday night at the um, international dinner we had, Trace and I wound up sitting at a table. I'll try not to embarrass them because two of them are here. With six widows And I was just, uh, as I thought about that, you know, they kind of share their story and they, you know, they have dinner and, and all that. And, you know, they all kind of knew each other in different contexts and, and yet collectively in the same context. And, and, and each one of them had a story, decades of stories. And each one of them, you know, had husbands that had decades of stories. And as Tracy and I sat there and just kind of reflected, as, as I was kind of sort of taking it in, in my mind I'm like, if you could put in a bottle, how much, or if you could somehow quantitate We'll put it that way. If you could somehow quantitate how much wisdom and faithfulness is represented here by these women and their husbands. And not, a, and not an ounce of religious accomplishment did I hear. But for me, it was a surreal moment. And I'd sure, I'd sure much rather my wife sit around a table like that 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years from now than to sit around at some award ceremony. Right? Isn't that the heart of God? A poor and contrite spirit and tremble at his word. And then do whatever comes naturally. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're so good to us that you just want to have fellowship with us, and that you've done everything to make it possible. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Help us to long for that. Lord, please, we all wrestle with those moments when we are impressed with our own religious efforts. Lord, help us to recognize those for what they are, filthy rags. And help us to always come back to a place of a broken, contrite spirit and a trembling at your word, that you can use us as vessels in the hands of a potter. Lord, thank you that you do that in our lives. Thank you that you've, you've done that in those that have gone before us, and so we can see that it's possible those that set the examples for us. Lord, we thank you for them. And we ask, us, ask that you would just um, do with us, do with us, and do with our lives whatever you desire, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.